welcome back to Costume Drama Rewind. I'm Megan Jutt. I'm Laura Skoog. And we are kicking off season two with the beloved Civil War epic Gettysburg, which, despite what you may have heard during our previous season, did not actually feature any vampires. Oh, man. Gettysburg is directed by Ron Maxwell and stars Tom Berenger, Jeff Daniels, Kevin Conway, Martin Sheen, and Stephen Lang, along with roughly 35,000 reenactors on their summer vacation. First, a quick synopsis. So, Battle of Gettysburg. That's it. That's the plot. Nope. Instead of a typical synopsis, we're just going to make it make sense. It's the summer of 1863, and the Confederate Army of Northern Virginia, commanded by Robert E. Lee, has won pretty consistently over the past two years. The one thing they haven't done is beat the Union Army on its home ground, but they're pretty convinced that if they can do that, the war's over. They've tried it before, most notably the previous fall, and that ended pretty badly at an engagement alternately called Sharpsburg in the south or Antietam in the north. So here come both armies marching north. The Army of Northern Virginia is all over central Pennsylvania and wreaking havoc and despair, but the Army of the Potomac has rather more hitch in their giddy-up than usual, and the two armies are pretty much on a course to collide with one another, which they do on the morning of July 1st, 1863, just northwest of a little Pennsylvania farming town. Watching this movie is kind of like watching Lost in its original run. As I kept warning Laura, don't get attached to anyone. That morning, dismounted Union cavalry at first managed to hold off a small force of Confederate infantry, but they get overwhelmed pretty quickly. They're relieved by Union infantry, who are now hauling ass up the road, but it's not enough. The lines break, and they beat a hasty retreat back through town, coming to a stop on some extremely convenient hills and ridges southeast of town, where they're soon reinforced. This is one of the things that confuses the heck out of people about this battle. They're in the north. And yet the Confederates come in from the north and the Union is coming in from the south. Just go with it. The light is fading and everyone is tired and thirsty. So the first day's engagement ends with a victory for the Confederates, but with the Union in a strong, fortified position that gets stronger overnight. The next day, the Confederates try to push forward and shake the Union from that position by attacking both of the Army's flanks. That gives us fun new locations in the geography of the Civil War, like Bloody Run and the Slaughter Pen, oh, good. which should be important context clues as to how it goes. July 3rd dawns, and Lee is still determined to take the Union position, and Longstreet is doubtful. In early afternoon, they launch what's known to history as Pickett's Charge, but what the nerds like to call Longstreet's Assault, and the really big nerds call mm. the Pickett Pettigrew Trimble Charge. Say that three times fast. Not sure what you're implying, Laura. <laughs> Whatever you call it, it's an utter failure, with the rate of those killed, wounded, or captured over 50%, a rate that rises to two-thirds for field officers in the lead column under General George Pickett. The battle is over, and so are Robert E. Lee's dreams of a major victory on northern soil, which he will never attempt again. Altogether, across three days of battle... The Union Army suffers about 23,000 casualties from among the 90,000 who are engaged, and the Confederate Army suffers between 23 and 28,000, accounts vary, from among the 70,000 soldiers they had engaged there. It remains the bloodiest battle in the history of American war. So we're going to jump right into our first impressions from there. I'm going to borrow a line from the venerable Civil War historian James McPherson, with whom I am in no way claiming equal status. But as he once wrote... If you were to witch me down from a helicopter on a moonless night at any point on the Gettysburg battlefield, I would instantly know where I am. I grew up in a very small town, guys. 
the only thing to do there when I was growing up was leave and go to other towns, one of which was Gettysburg, 25 miles to the north. I spent a lot of time there from childhood right on up. I both first saw this movie and read the novel that it's based on when I was 12, and more than any other single influence, other than I guess my parents, hi guys, it is probably most responsible for the person I became. So welcome to my brain, y'all. I have a lot of questions. <laughs> you always do. <laughs> but I'm not gonna lie, I appreciate the crucial importance of the Civil War to our nation's existence, but whenever I've thought about it, I've always been put off by the bizarre facial hair, the heavy wool uniforms, just how sweaty they all had to be in the B.O., and how everyone looked like their 59% body lice. However, I really enjoyed all 12 hours of this movie, and now I'm actually more interested in learning about the Civil War. So thank you, Megan, for brainwashing me. Your education commences tomorrow, but let's get down to the heart of the matter. The Battle of Gettysburg is too big and too complicated to cover everything, so the movie takes its narrative focus, character studies, and most of its dialogue from the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel The Killer Angels. On the Union side, the movie focuses on two commanders. If you can see him under all that dirt, grizzled actor Sam Elliott plays General John Buford, a grizzled cavalry commander who is the first to recognize the value of Gettysburg terrain. He is also the film's most cynical and hilarious character, perpetually grousing about everything, but especially about politics and politicians, both of which he really hates. The second, Jeff Daniels, plays Colonel Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, whose mustache appears to have bangs. He kind of looks like the Lorax, and his main arc is that he's a college professor who turns out to be really good at being a military leader. And making inspirational, soulful speeches. Early on, he gets stuck with a group of soldiers who have mutinied following the disbanding of their regiment, and he inspires them to keep fighting alongside his own troops. Later, he'll lead the famous and pivotal bayonet charge down Little Round Top. He's accompanied by his younger brother, Tom, who serves as his aide and who, unlike most reality show contestants, really is just here to make friends, and by the movie's only named character who isn't a real person, a wise and witty and faintly drunk Irishman who's a career soldier, Sergeant Buster Kilrain. On the Confederate side, we focus on Robert E. Lee, played by Martin Sheen, who spins this entire movie like he's really just mildly annoyed about poor service at a garden party, and... His second-in-command, James Longstreet, whose very fake beard is eating his face, and who's played by Tom Berenger. They're still dealing with the fallout caused by Stonewall Jackson's death at the Battle of Chancellorsville two months earlier. Lee and Longstreet spend much of the movie very politely fighting with one another, as Lee still favors more traditional battle tactics, while Longstreet is urging for a more defensive posture. Lee and Longstreet are surrounded by a colorful cast of other Southern commanders. The two to know and remember are George Pickett, whose name will get attached to the battles and perhaps the war's biggest failure, and Louis Armistead, who is tortured by the knowledge that his best friend in the entire world, General Winfield Hancock, is commanding Union troops, and he'll be leading an attack against them. Don't get attached! <laughs> No feelings. Squash all the feelings. (laughs) 
they're all followed around by an unofficial observer from the British Army, Colonel Arthur Fremantle, who, by virtue of being British, is perpetually depicted as the world's biggest panty waste, despite the fact that he is a member of the Coldstream Guards, the elite regiment that still helps protect the Queen. It's always useful to ask what a historical movie gets right and what it gets wrong, and Gettysburg got kind of panned when it was released for being largely fan service for Civil War buffs, which it is. Come on. We don't get much in life. But that also means that this movie goes off with a high, almost obsessive degree of accuracy. If it falls short, it's in the fact that they just can't possibly cover everything. Hard as they try. Endless as the runtime may seem. They've got to leave something out. Here's a quick rundown of the important things that do get left out. On the first day of the battle, the fact that the Union is able to regroup so quickly after retreating isn't due simply to luck, but to the fact that Union General Oliver Howard had the good sense and foresight to leave soldiers and cannons on Cemetery Hill just south of town before racing to join the fight in the Northwest. The division he left in reserve was able to effectively cover the Union retreat, and he really doesn't get enough credit for helping save that battle. On the second day, the film lovingly focuses on fighting on the Union left, the decision that made a million Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain buffs, while ignoring the fierce fighting on Culp's Hill at the other end of the Union line. Meanwhile... Confederate Cavalry Commander Jeb Stewart continually gets guff in this movie for his absence as he's riding around getting his name in the papers. That's partially true, but in the days immediately leading up to the battle, he's also doing some of his own fighting when he runs into a detachment of Delaware Cavalry in a little town called Westminster, Maryland. Historians call that engagement Corbett's Charge. Locals, since Westminster, Maryland is in fact my hometown, refer to it as the Battle of Sheets after the beloved gas station with the delicious breakfast sandwiches that now houses the battle's one historical marker. Anyway, Stuart rocks up for five minutes, Lee gives him the I'm not mad, I'm disappointed speech. I'm not mad, I'm only slightly, mildly put out. (laughs) Yeah... And then Stuart rides away to actually try and do his job. This also goes badly. He's tasked with reconnoitering the Union lines and also messing them up a little bit ahead of Pickett's charge. Instead, he runs into Union cavalry a few miles east of town, one brigade of which is commanded by a 23-year-old, who is not yet known to history but soon will be, George Armstrong Custer. Anyway, they block Stuart in his tracks and he fails again. He really was quite a good commander, but it's kind of hard to tell from this movie. Finally, the film leaves out the really big thing going on in the Western theater of the war at the same time, the Siege of Vicksburg, Mississippi, which ends with a Confederate surrender on July 4th, 1863, the day Lee begins his retreat from Gettysburg. The fall of Vicksburg means that the Union now holds the entire Mississippi River, splitting the Confederacy in two. Gettysburg gets a lot of the ink, but I think Vicksburg is the real turning point of the war, not least because it frees General Ulysses Grant, the victorious commander of the Vicksburg campaign, to come east and take overall command of the Union Army. This movie also sometimes gets panned by those who can't figure out whether it's a pro-Union or pro-Confederate movie. To be fair, the filmmakers try to play it straight down the middle, but they tell them on themselves a few different ways. On one hand, you can often tell which way a movie is trying to go by who they make the hero, and the undisputed main good guy of the movie Gettysburg is Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, who entered the war out of fierce abolitionist convictions. On the other hand, the movie gives kind of a lot of runtime to various Confederates arguing their cause with a variety of metaphors that emphasize states' rights narratives. 
On the third hand, it also makes most of them look like utter buffoons most of the time, with a heavy dose of the lady doth protest too much, while letting the obviously smarter Confederate officers like Longstreet question the slave system and claim that they're not fighting for any particular cause, they just don't know how to do anything other than be soldiers. On the fourth hand, this is really getting to be a lot of hands, they leave out one really glaring historical fact. Early on, the movie alludes to Lee's orders that there was to be no looting by his troops of food and supplies from the civilian population of Pennsylvania, an order that was in fact issued and was largely respected. What he did not attempt to stop was the kidnapping of about a thousand free black men and women from central and southern Pennsylvania who were sent south into slavery. This was done so at the express request of the Confederate government, which issued a general order for it in March of 1863, and it's impossible to believe that Lee didn't know that this order existed or that it was followed by his troops. So, how many hats? Well, if you enjoyed the highly scientific rating system we employed for last season's Joe March Madness, goodbye to all that. Like Jeff Daniels' mustache streaming bayonets! I am going with my heart and gut on this one, and awarding Gettysburg a full five of those baller black hats that the Iron Brigade always wore. This is the greatest Civil War movie ever made. Possibly one of the greatest movies ever made. Period. It has everything. Obsessive accuracy, total badassery, stirring speeches about human freedom, unlikely heroes, men sharing their feelings. It's great. I'm clearly not as emotionally attached to this film as you are. I did think about giving it a five Iron Brigade hats, but I'm going to dial it back to a four. Partly because I'm afraid of other people having emotions, but also because of the way in which they tried to allude to the free black people being captured by the Confederate troops. Basically, the 20th Maine happens upon a black man who's tried to flee, and he's so traumatized he's practically catatonic. But the movie puts the focus less on what this man has suffered, and more as a way to showcase Chamberlain's abolitionist leanings. So from there, we want to jump into a few sundry other notes. One of the things I find really fun about this movie is that the primary target audience for it, Civil War buffs and reenactors, were actually involved in making it. For the roughly 5,000 film extras, they drew heavily on the Civil War reenactor community, which turned out with proper gear, outfits, and weapons, and in true reenactor stereotype spirit, they insisted on keeping in character at all times, such as camping out on the battlefields in tents. And a Baltimore Sun article from the time quotes Jeff Daniels talking about how the reenactors insisted on calling him Colonel Chamberlain and saluting him at all times, even when he wasn't in his costume. 10 out of 10. Wood. <laughs> the presence of so many reenactors in town for weeks on end also gave rise to a whole bunch of new ghost stories, something that Gettysburg wasn't really lacking previously. The most famous of those is the story of the local hotel owner who gave a ride in the bed of her pickup truck one night to a group of guys who disappeared sometime during the ride. Additionally, in one of the later scenes, where all the Confederate troops cheer on Lee, who looks hella unnerved by this profuse expression of men emoting, (laughs) this was unscripted, and it was actually spurred on by the reenactors themselves. Also, keep an eye out for the man who's now most associated with the Civil War. Ken Burns shows up as an aide to Union General Winfield Hancock. With a haircut that makes him look like Dave Barry. (laughs) He kind of always does, doesn't he? I'm realizing that. Also, the film's producer, Ted Turner, features briefly as Confederate Colonel Waller Patton. Who isn't all that important, but you can see him bite the big one during Pickett's (laughs) Charge right about the time he reaches the Emmitsburg Road. 
Speaking of location, the movie was filmed pretty much entirely on location at Gettysburg National Military Park, and frankly, the most impressive thing about this is the creative camera work that managed to hide the approximately 1,200 memorials and markers scattered throughout the battlefield, some of which are huge, along with paved roads and other modern concessions to the fact that the battlefield is visited by well over a million people a year, soon to include my friend and co-host Laura Skoke. Sometimes they're really sneaky about how they manage to hide the monuments and memorials. On the western face of Little Round Top is a life-size statue of General Governor Warren, the Union Chief of Engineers, which they managed to hide in one scene with the actor playing General Warren as he surveys the Union and Confederate positions. So, rolling over to Laura for our actor count. We don't actually have too many repeats this time. Martin Sheen, Robert E. Lee, was one of the supporting characters in Bobby. John Rothman, who played Union Major General John Reynolds, appeared as President of the Confederacy, Jefferson Davis, in Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. Donald Logue, who is Captain Ellis Spear of the 20th Maine, was Dan Scott in The Patriot, and most recently, Jacob Meyer in 1994's Little Women. Butch Culpepper and Kevin Hirschberger, two of the background soldiers, were Minutemen in The Patriot. And Shane Pinson, who here plays a Confederate soldier, was a Union soldier in Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter. And I have to point out that W. Morgan Shepard, who plays Confederate Major Trimble and who does the opening scenes narration, did the voice of Ignatius Cheese in one of the Monkey Island computer games, which is what's responsible for the person that I am. For something that I've literally never heard anyone but you mention, I apparently cannot escape Escape from Monkey Island. But before we wrap up, I wanted to share that I actually had an ancestor who served at Gettysburg, which is something I didn't know until just a few years ago. Private Erastus Smart, my fourth great-grandfather, enlisted in the 82nd Pennsylvania Volunteers in the summer of 1861, and over the next four years was basically everywhere that the Army of the Potomac was, in every battle. They arrived in Gettysburg on July 2nd, where they were held in reserve that day, and moved to Culp's Hill the next, taking heavy artillery fire from a flank attack early in the morning. Private Smart served right up to the end of the war, but was wounded on April 6, 1865, at the Battle of Sailor's Creek, Virginia. Three days later, Lee surrendered. The day after that, Private Smart died of his wound. Fortunately, he'd also gotten around to getting married and having one daughter before marching out of Philadelphia, or I guess we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. I'd just be talking to myself the entire time. (laughs) At any rate, I'm quite proud to be his descendant, and if you ever do visit Gettysburg, please look for his name on the eastern side of the Pennsylvania State Monument. We will see you later this month, when we hit up another one of Megan's favorite movies and favorite people, A Man for All Seasons, which is about St. Thomas More. It's like Christmas and my birthday at the same time. This is Costume Drama Rewind. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 